inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Hello, good day, and welcome to another episode of Outlook. Guess what? We have another guest today. Yeah, we've had a few weeks without, so we're back to another guest, which is very exciting. I don't know if there's anything else off the top we need to talk about before introducing him. What do you think, Care? No, I think we're good. So, yes, this week we've invited Patrick to be our guest. Uh, say hello, Patrick. Hi, guys. Hi, so that's Patrick Bouchard, and you're calling from Barrie, Ontario, is that right? That's right. Yeah. But uh, so we met we met Patrick actually just a couple of years ago back in 2018, where we met a lot of people actually at the Orlando National Federation of the Blind convention, pretty much not really at the convention as the convention ended and we were waiting at the airport Um, since we are both from Ontario, obviously different areas, but we're uh, all of us are from Ontario here. So we were flying back at the same time, pretty much. And uh, yeah, the history goes from there. So um, perhaps maybe start way before that and kind of get a little bit into your childhood sort of growing up. Are you, are you from Barrie original, originally or? No, um, I was born in, in Brampton and we, we lived in a few places throughout the years. Uh, we were up in Bracebridge at one point and so up in Muskoka, uh, but then we moved back to Brampton uh, so that I could be a little bit closer to Brant Ford, which of course is where the school for the blind is. So we, yeah, we decided that still living in Bracebridge and me going there just would be a lot of hassle because the bus ride back and forth would be ridiculous. So we moved back to Brampton, so it would only be like a couple of hours. Wow, yeah, because that's the thing with that school, everybody coming in from all over the place to one school in yeah. the area. I mean, some people even flew in because like, they lived all the way out in Ottawa or Sudbury. One guy even came in from Thunder Bay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'd hear, I'd hear stories like that from friends and things and think, I can't imagine doing that as a school routine every week. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two-hour bus ride was bad enough. Like, I got used to it, but having to go through the the steps to get on and off an airplane every time that would be yeah, yeah i mean glad, some people are used I'm glad to i didn't have to do that people who you know tour all the time or whatever their job might be but generally speaking especially being growing up and having to do that seems it's hard to imagine but i guess you get used to it yeah i don't i don't mind flying but i think twice a week every you know, twice a week every week would get a bit much yeah i agree so so you were you were born blind is that right or I was born with, yeah, with low vision. I've since lost pretty much all the vision I did have. Um, but when I was really young, up until about nine, I could see close-ups. Like, I could read with a magnifying glass. I could see the TV if I was right in front of it. Or, you know, I could, you know, I could use those CCTVs to read print if I didn't want to have a magnifying glass in my face. Like I could do that. I could see what people look like if they were right in front of me. Um, but thankfully uh, I had a good support system and I still learned 
Braille and cane travel because everyone around me knew that I might not keep that vision. And turns out they were right. <laughs> oh, that's very relatable to me. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds, that sounds a lot like Carrie, actually. Um, again, it's hard to totally compare vision, I find. It's such a varying degree that yeah. it's really hard to compare. But that sounds, I don't know, Carrie, what do you think? That sounds pretty similar to how you used to be able to see. Yeah, I love those CCTVs. <laughs> yeah, something I, I could about... never, I could never relate to that because I was born yeah. well with a tiny bit of sight, but not enough for any of that. Yeah. Just light and dark, pretty much. So you guys yeah. can connect over that a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I remember when you... I was, I was five, you know, when I was five and six, you know, I was, I was bored learning braille and cane travel and oh. stuff as any kid would be, like, you know, doing lessons instead of playing whatever games or whatever <laughs> I was doing. Um, but I'm certainly glad now that I did. Yeah, it's always the earlier, the better, probably. I mean, not to discourage anyone from, I mean, you got to you pick it up any time in life. Don't feel like if you're oh, too yeah. old that you shouldn't. But at the same no, time, it's, it is nice when you did have that experience as a, as a younger yeah. person growing up. So yeah. Um, now, what, what condition, what was your diagnosis for blindness? Do you know? Uh, Microphthalmia. Okay. And so basically, my, my eyes are just really underdeveloped. Well, one is underdeveloped. It gets very small um and just didn't fully mature and the other eye didn't develop at all i have an empty socket with a prosthesis oh wow some more stuff that i can relate to yeah uh i didn't know that <laughs> word but um never heard of that condition i don't think yeah what was the what was the name once more for anyone who missed it yeah microphthalmia okay yeah it's just it's interesting for people to know We're some of these 100 and right, but. we've had yeah some of these conditions are the words are quite big and big um, long five syllable word <laughs> confusing words but I, I do find it interesting because we we generally like to ask our guests and some there's been a uh, few guests who aren't even really sure what their diagnosis is or it wasn't looked into as much and then you know a lot of people that do know so it's just always interesting to to get that in and personally i would think it's important to know so that you can you know at least be aware of what what is the issue instead of i mean some people just kind of like not knowing i guess some, to some degree but i i think it's it is nice to see that you are aware of so you went to W. Ross all your life? Were you um, around other lot, a lot of other blind people? I started there when I was nine. So I, I was, oh, did a okay. few years in a, in a public school first. Right. Okay. And, um, and how, was that, how was that whole transition at the time? I mean, yeah. I know it was a long time ago now, but. <laughs> I mean, I had, I, even at the uh, you know, standard schools, I had like uh, specialty teachers, you know, teaching me Braille and cane skills and otherwise working with me with any class material that might not have been fully accessible. And I was like, the, tra like, the transition, I mean, it was de definitely different, like being around blind kids and having Braille books just readily available and everything. But I mean, it wasn't, you know, since everything at W. Ross was accessible, like, transition i mean the biggest transition would have been not going home during the week so i mean that you know i was nine so that was that was hard for me at first you know being on familiar surroundings like sleeping you know in a new place with you know at first complete strangers around me so it was you know that was jarring but in terms of the classroom experience you know it was it was easy enough to to adapt to working that way 
Yeah, that's another thing that that differs. And I was going to ask if you did stay in in residence at the school, because for anyone who doesn't know the Branford School, well, I guess you might assume at this point now we've been talking about people flying in that they would have a residence there. But, you know, there were some people that were like our our friend from Woodstock was close enough that he would just bus back every day. He wouldn't stay at all. So several people who did, but it's always interesting. And that's another big difference. Is flying into school is one thing I can't imagine, and then staying at school throughout the week, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that either. So, interesting uh, to think about. Was the was your transition at the time? Was it a, a choice by you or, or your parents deciding at the time that you should go to the the school in Brantford, or like what was the? Cause yeah, they they decided that because I guess um, I wasn't doing it. Like I'd started to not do my work properly at at uh, public school which i guess they attributed to like having difficulties with blindness or whatever um, i'm not i don't remember if that's why it was i was 8 at the time i mean i guess they also felt like i wasn't being challenged enough cuz you know some of the inaccessible work that i wasn't able to do like you know, what was left i guess wasn't enough work for me so I was getting bored a lot and then it started to affect my behavior mm. so that's yeah they decided they were going to do that but I guess they they decided to move back to Brampton instead of Brantford so like I wasn't a day student so I, just, I don't know if they specifically decided that I should be in the residence there too or if they just moved back to Brampton for other reasons yeah, these things feel so long ago now. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Looking back on them, it's like, what perspective did we over, really have at over that 20, age? Over 20 years ago, yeah. And then, of course, I didn't have the whole picture. Like, I I only knew what was relevant to me at the time. Yeah, there's there's so many factors, and it's hard to know. Again, at that point, it's our our parents are the ones kind of making our deci- this decisions for us, and they're the ones that are dealing with a lot of the stuff. So it's it's interesting to kind of yeah. look back on it. And So how about socially, as far as being at either school or your school career did you do well with that or i mean i think i i did better with it at the blind school than uh at, at w ross than before just because you know i had more to relate to the kids at a young age um i do think that being there for as long as i did eventually it is a bit of a problem socially because you're not exposed to people from outside that world very much especially Mm -hmm. since i you know we moved so that i could go to that school so like i left behind the friends i did have at bracebridge and then of course i was away all week and not going to school in brampton so i didn't i didn't know anybody in brampton like i didn't make any local friends there because i was always away Mm -hmm. so you know the friends i had were in brantford and of course, you know, the W. Ross, you know, the population of the student population is very small compared to any like standard school. So you say, I, overall, I met fewer people. And then, of course, once I graduated and wasn't going there anymore, then every friend I ever had lived all over the province. <laughs> so that, that's been a bit of an issue. But I mean, throughout the time at the school, like it was fine. <laughs> Yeah, because that becomes the other thing about a school that's all for the blind kids is how much time are they getting in um, the rest of the world? Right. Because for one by one day they'll need to be back out in it. So 
Yeah. I mean, that doesn't I mean, was, mean that it's, it's not kind of possible. A one, two, it was kind of a one-two punch, like going there, but also moving right before. Like if I if I lived somewhere for a couple of years first and and made some friends there, then yeah, I'd still see them on weekends or summer and whatever, and then like that would have I would have still kept that up, but I didn't have any of that because I, I moved away from everyone, like all the friends I had, and then it was away all the time, like I said. So mm-hmm. just I didn't know anyone at home. Now and mm-hmm. then looking looking back when you were at at W. Ross and Brantford, did you have feelings ever of, you know, I wish, I wish maybe I was still in, integrated into the other schools or were you, I know you said near the end more, maybe a little bit, but were you pretty content there for the most part? Or did you ever think kind of, what would it have been like if I didn't come I here kind of thing? started to think about it like toward the, yeah, toward the end of my time there, like the last couple of years. Right. Before that, I didn't really, like, it didn't enter my mind. Like I, I guess I just saw it as a fact of life and didn't really think about it. Cause I mean, I was there most of the time, like during the week, you know, at all times of year, except holidays and summer. Like it's not a thing I really thought about until like I started thinking about, Oh, I'm going to college in a year or two. I'm, you know, and then thinking about how, how that was going to go and think about meeting people. And then I, re- I realized like how, I guess sequestered socially I'd been from yeah, being I guess, there for so long. I guess if you're like you say, you're you were nine when you went there, so you're you're still pretty young then and you're you know, you're getting to becoming going into adolescence and all this, but you're still very young, so so you wouldn't really yeah. you know, you kinda just go with the flow and you're what you're used to, then but then near the end where the decisions start you start thinking about life and afterwards and then I can't I can only imagine because it's it was nerve-wracking enough for me to think about college and I was in you know integrated into the public school system with with uh, the sighted population so even even then I was I was nervous but at that point I had had you know 13 years of school of experience being around that so if you were are away right. from that I think I feel like it could make more of a challenge and again obviously yeah like, yeah going from W Ross to college that transition was pretty shocking like it was I, I liken it to culture shock, just because it was. I was not used to. I was not used to the the social atmosphere. I was not used to how things were managed. They compared to you know school with like less than three hundred people or whatever it was. I think it was less than three hundred. Um, yeah, yeah very that was small that class was, sizes. Yeah, that was difficult to adjust to. Ironically, I found like the the coursework at college the easiest part of it <laughs> everything else you know yeah, great, great big new buildings like orientation took a while to to nail down and then figuring out like meeting people and you know ma- managing like, managing my own life i mean thankfully i had some independent skills already uh, thanks to the apartment to program at w ross if i hadn't had that I, it would have been even worse but at least i had that so that wasn't too bad yeah, there's so a lot to get to what, at once. What was that? Uh, that is on on campus. They have like a two, a little two bedroom basement apartment, and each year two students uh, can apply to live there. And it's basically, it's I mean, it's, it's the residence, but you don't you don't have any direct supervision. 
um, you know, there's there's always people nearby if you need help with something, and like they'll come in and check on you here and there and all that stuff. But like you live day to day independently, so you you manage your own groceries, you, know, you you take care of yourself and all that. You cook your own food, you know, keep the place clean, all that kind of all that kind of stuff, and you you really learn. Like I mean, you learn. You obviously you need some independent skills already, but like you know, you can fine tune them while you're living there. Yeah. I mean, and that's, a, that's kind of what I was wondering at, or was thinking about was how you mentioned the transition was such a big one from, from there to the college. So at least they do have that option, this apartment option that is a bit of a preparation for being independent and living on your own. Um, probably be nice if it was available to more people at, at a time, but, uh, that seems at yeah. least something, right? Yeah. Well, you figure like the, they have, um, the the previous uh, program they have the the house programs which there's six six boys and six girls and that's you know you that's where you learn all the skills like it's a smaller residence type uh, type setting like you have you know there's there's always a staff on site like they're supervised but like a lot of the a lot of the strict residence rules are are lifted and then you you learn. Like you take turns doing all the chores and cooking meals, so everyone gets a chance to really learn and get a foundation in them. And then from there, like, yeah, I think you had to have been in one of those to be able to do the apartment to prerequisite. So it was, I guess, every year two people can move on from that, and there's twelve in the houses in any given year. So. Well, so that helped with one of the part of the transition. So where where did you go to school and what did you go to school for? Was it accessibility? How was it when you when you got there? Yeah, so I went to Georgian College here in Barrie. That's that's how I first ended up in Barrie. Right. And I I went there because like I was I heard a lot about their their co op programs and how they were really ex- successful at uh, getting students jobs after. Because you have all that work experience as part of your program, and I, I really wanted something with a lot of practical experience. I learned really well with practical application, so I, mm. I went there. I did uh, computer programming, and the accessibility of the course it was mostly mostly good. Like I, the, the instructors were pretty good about getting, you know, c- conveying what we're doing ahead of time. Uh, you know, a lot of the code examples and things like that were electronic already naturally because it's you know it's a computer course so that's already accessible you know i had to work with a couple of them on uh programs that they were using that weren't accessible i had to find some alternatives for me to be able to do my work but we were mostly able to do that uh the biggest issue was the textbooks because i mean you have to get those you have to get those scanned I mean, if this was, if I was going there now, it's 10 years later, I'd probably be able to find a lot more of them just online as an ebook, mm-hmm. And that would have been better. But back then, like it was still the easiest way to get them was, you know, in print and then I had to get them scanned, which look, thankfully the, the office was pretty fast about doing that. Um, but scanners are not perfect. <laughs> so no. Yeah. And especially, like, it wasn't so bad with, like, my elective courses. You know, if, if there's a few, you know, a few incorrect words here and there in, like, a, I don't know, a psychology book, like, you can still get the gist of what they're talking about. But if there's a mistake in, like, the code examples or 
an explanation of like what this code does or how to do that, it can really mess you up. So Yeah, that's a big point is if it's just a straight up textbook, just text or whatever, it's easy enough if it's just words, but when it's codes and all this kind of stuff, it Yeah, especially when they use different fonts for all the code examples and like to highlight different different parts of the program, like it it plays havoc with the OCR and the scanner. Well, OCR. That's optic character recognition. For yeah, recognition. So you've always been into computers or technology? Um, yeah, well, since since my teen years, at least, I didn't really have one before that because I didn't I didn't have like, of course, my my family didn't have a screen reader, or didn't have Jaws or any of that. I don't think NVDA existed back then. That's another screen reader, but um, yeah, so we didn't have that on the family computer. So once. I lost what little vision I had. I couldn't reuse it. And then at school, like in, in, you know, the, the lower grades, like we didn't, we just weren't offered the opportunity to go on the, get on the computer. So I, hmm. I, I really started to play around with them like in my early teen years. And then I got my own with jaws on it and it was history from there. Hmm. And then in yep. high school, um, they had, it was actually an accident. Uh, I thought I was applying for just like a general like computers course, like how to use, you know, I use computers with like Microsoft Office and all that, like the, the typical standard, you know, early high school computer class. But actually it turns out that it was an introduction to, introduction to programming class. And <laughs> it, so I went there, it was not at all what I expected, but I took to it. And a couple of years later, I ended up uh, applying for college programs in it. Yeah, I think that's yeah. really interesting because it's computers have been something that I've always, I've always been like really enjoyed and excelled with, I guess. But I've never, I've never done much computer programming, and it's something I've been interested in, but I've never, I've never actually really looked into it any further. So it's just nice to see that other other blind people are out in that in that. Uh, Field and... These days, most of my work is on the internet. It's like I do like web web page, like web program, creative websites, and then uh, a big thing we're doing now is testing websites and auditing them for accessibility. Right, that's a big, well, that's a big one. Oh, siren, siren's going off somewhere. Is that oh, a yeah, barrier? That's, that's, a barrier that's on my end. Yeah, <laughs> I live not far from the hospital, so. Oh. You oh, you hear that sometimes. <laughs> I, w- I was just going to ask how how long was the computer programming course at college? Uh, three years. So it was an advanced. It's an advanced diploma, so it's not a it's not a bachelor's. But and when you applied to it, did you were there any other areas you were considering or applied for or thought about going to school for? Or was you were you pretty much set on programming at that point? I was yeah, I was pretty much set on programming or like uh computer management it's like the other course would have been like uh general technician stuff so that would have been like fixing computers putting them together or things like that but i my choice my, pref- my preference was the programming and i just picked that as a backup because you got you had to apply for well you didn't have to apply for five but i mean you're what you paid for got you five applications so i'm fear i might as well use them 
and have some backups in case I didn't get into my preference, but I did get into my preferred choice. So that was the programming. You sound very adaptable, I have to say. From different transitions and yeah, well, you yeah, mean, I do you know, like you know, to have taking the I, program. I do like to have a couple of of ideas and plans just to make sure that I'm not caught off guard by something. Uh, and I right. Always know what I'm going to be working toward. Yeah, that's always something we like to highlight on this show is adaptability and how how important it is for everyone but especially for blind people and that's something that we've noticed i think a lot of and a lot with this pandemic is being able to adapt for things and some people are, are better at it than others but i just think being blind it's something not that, it's not to say everyone doesn't need to work at it and it's not e- always easy but i think it's something that you have to do from the beginning pretty much so it's something that's more natural maybe oh, yeah. than for some people oh, yeah, it's definitely definitely important because you know, if I need, I need to keep a, you know, have a couple of ways to get, say, you know, a couple ways to get where I'm going in mind, just in case, you know, all of a sudden one day there's construction on the sidewalk or there's a, a big hole that opened up or whatever. And if I don't know any other ways to get where I'm going, I'm stuck. I mean, that, that applies to anything. Like you never know when you might run into an accessibility challenge or something that's just not working as it's supposed to. Or, you know, in, in this case, you know, it's, you know, it's a little less technical than that. It, it was college applications. It probably didn't happen to to get into the one I wanted. But it's the same principle. Like, my preparations for making sure that I can get where I need to and do what I need to in case something goes wrong applies here, too. Like, it's a transferable thing. Right. So, um what about job searching once college sort of took you where you wanted to go? Right. So it took, it did take me a few months to find work after I graduated from college. Uh, I, had, I had ended up uh, working with an agency that helps people with job search. It's, it's managed through ODSP. Right, yeah, Ontario uh, yeah. Disability, Disability Support, Support Program. Program. Yeah, so they, they have offices that help people with job searching. They'll help you with your resumes and your cover letters and interview prep and help you look for jobs and apply to them. So I, work, I was working with them for a few months, and then I found uh, a, a four-month uh, contract with the city of Barrie, so out of City Hall. So I worked there for a while, but then I couldn't, I couldn't continue there because they couldn't get authorization to continue, like with the budget. They couldn't, they couldn't authorize uh, extending my contract. No, it, it wasn't their decision. They wanted to, but they couldn't get the city council themselves to authorize it. So, which I mean, I I can understand why how that can be. That can be difficult to get them to do what you need them to. So, uh, yeah, that, that didn't work out. And then eventually I ended up moving out of Barrie into Midland because I was still having trouble finding work and Brent and Barrie is a little bit ridiculous. So I ended up moving to Midland because it was cheaper. And as it happened, uh, I got set up with the YMCA there for, for job searching and someone there knew uh, the person who is now one of my bosses at my current job, 
and they made a connection and I started work at uh, Collaborative House Marketing. It's a, it's a small little uh, marketing, digital marketing company based out of Midland. And I've been there ever since. All right. We're talking to Patrick Bouchard here today on Outlook. We're going to take a quick break for some ads and we'll be right back with more Outlook on Radio Western. Welcome back. This is Outlook on a Monday morning, and you're listening to our, our interview with Patrick Bouchard. And um, thanks again, Patrick, for being on the show. No, oh, glad to be here. So the first half hour there, we were talking all about um, school and more school and more school, mm-hmm. uh, and we made it to employment. So, yeah, I mean, you sound like your journey with employment wasn't know terrible as i've heard some but uh wasn't super easy either uh how did you settle into work the work environment well the work the work environment while i work is where i work has actually evolved over the years since i started there because when i when i began there there were maybe five or six people in total at the company it was it was a very small uh, family-run business i mean it still is but it was even smaller then. Uh, so we, at that time, we were just working out of their home office. Oh. It was the only space we needed. So that's what we were doing at first. But then we started to expand. Um, and then we ended up renting office space. We, we started in one, one place. We had, we had our eye on one building that was under construction. Uh, and we, uh, we needed to... Uh, a temporary office in the meantime, so we we did, so we did that. But getting starting working, you know, out of their home office with so few people, I think made the transition easier because it you know just, it wasn't a big unfamiliar building. You know, it was, I mean, I had to get learn my way around the house, but that wasn't too hard. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a lot of people and a lot of noise to to make things complicated. So when I did start working out. Of there out of the office once we actually started to to lease one yeah you know, I was right. already I was already used to the job itself so I didn't have to figure out two things at once yeah so what about transportation at the time to get to where I assume it wasn't from home like you said yeah because you started working there I think was it 2015 2015 yeah at the end of 2015 so um, I Initially, I took the bus when we were working out of their home office because their 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 street corner was one of the bus stops, so it was super easy to get there. Mm. Uh, but then, when we moved into our office, like our like official office space, it was downtown. It was only about four blocks away from me. So, especially during the summer and other time, you know, basically anything but winter. I would just walk there because it was it only took about fifteen minutes. Nice. Hmm. It's convenient. So it was it was a nice way to get some exercise, save some money. And it didn't take very long, so it was it was great. I mean, during the winter I would still I'd either take a bus or get taxis because walking that far over snowy sidewalks is not an easy thing to do. Right? That's common, yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're blind and you need, you know, your your tactile feedback. If everything feels like snow, it's easy to get lost. 
Yeah, right. it definitely makes <laughs> makes for a challenge with these winters yeah. here in in Canada. So, what about your cane skills? Were you um, <clears throat> were you? Because there's a t- different kind of methods with, with learning the cane. There's learning roots in, like individually, or sort of just being good at uh, adapting to any situation. Sort of when you travel and just sort of figuring it out. Which one did you do? A bit of both, or um. Yeah, a bit of both, but like the the orientation mobility teachers at W. Ross seem to like the roots, mm-hmm. um, at least to, at least toward the end. Like, I wish they'd done more a bit more like general concepts for figuring out how to get places. Like, I mean, you know, it was general cane skill technique. Like when we were working in the school, but when we started working out, you know, out in the community, then it was very it was always specific roots. And it's so like I I learned, you know, the specific crossings we were doing, but it wasn't really relevant to anything else because I couldn't take that skill and go somewhere else. Like I had, like I need to, you know, I need I need to be taught like how to determine what kind of intersection I'm approaching or how to get my bearings if I go the wrong way and stuff. Which I mean, I have that now, but back then they didn't do it as much as I would have liked. Well, mm-hmm. Do you ever consider getting a guide dog? I thought about it once. Um, back then, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I've thought about it here and there over over time. But like, there was one one time I was seriously considering it, and like, I had a a, a home visit from with a representative from one of the schools. And at the time, they determined that I wasn't traveling enough for it to mm. to make sense. It was a long time ago, so I can understand that. If I'd done that more recently, I almost certainly would have been approved for it. But then I just, I just got settled into my routine, like at, at college and and stuff, and I just haven't really given it a lot of thought since. And you know, because it, it takes you know a couple of weeks, you have to be away for a couple of weeks to get to get the dog, and I just never seem to have the opportunity. And you know, I got used to using the cane around campus and. All that, but I mean, I do know several people with guide dogs, and I've seen how they work, and they are definitely useful. So I, mean, I haven't ruled it out. I might at some point. Yeah, right. it's definitely one of those things that once you do get set in a routine, if you're already working and you're, you know, it take you have to take time off, and it's not that you couldn't do it. It's just once you're kind of settled in, it's harder to harder to care, I guess. Probably. I mean, that's that's how kind of I find. Like, I know I think we're similar in situations yeah. that. Well, with Carrie too, I guess we all, I think all three of us live on our own, right? None of us have roommates right. or anything. No, um, I don't anymore. So once you live on your own and you have your own kind of set routine and stuff, it's sometimes it's hard to really bother looking into that unless you get to a point in your life where it just becomes absolutely necessary or you feel like it's the time to do it. So, Yeah, and I, I, just, I never particularly found an issue with, with my situation, with that part of my situation. So I wasn't motivated to get up and apply for apply for a guide dog as my cane was working, but <laughs> never trusty cane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess con- congrats then. You've com- you're coming up on five years at the at the uh, collaborative marketing job at this point. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, next month. So that's great. Yeah, that's great. We like to talk about stories of employment because 
I mean, a lot of employers still do uh, fear what they don't know. And they think like, like you said, Patrick, getting to learn your way around the house that you guys had as an office or whatever that was, you know, wasn't a big challenge, but some employers look at it and think. Yeah. I mean, like some, some employment counselors or people I've been working with to try to find jobs. Occasionally you have, you do come across someone like, Oh, that place would have has stairs. You wouldn't be able to do that. Right. And again, these are just these uh-huh. assumptions that, that for some reason are in the, in the population and in society that we're trying to, trying to break away from a bit. So the only yeah, way we can I've really nev- do I've that never, I never had that one specifically, but I know it is a thing that other blind people encounter. Yeah, so yeah, overall yeah. you're you're pretty happy with with this job and you're not I mean I I assume maybe someday you might work somewhere else but you're overall you're pretty content there. Oh sure, yeah. I mean I still have what 30 or so years of my working life ahead of me. So you know, who knows where I'll end up. I mean for now it it's a good job. I work with good people. My work is, you know, it's important work like especially since they they got really into the the accessibility uh because, you know, with websites in Ontario having to meet certain accessibility standards, you know, there's, there's an opportunity and money to be made in, in that field because the clients will come to us because they don't want to get, they don't want to be uh, fined for having an accessible website. So, but I mean, right, it's, impor- it's important work too. Like we, I mean, we, we believe it, you know, in its importance, you know, whether or not there's a law, like we don't just do it for the money, but. It does also pay the bills. And that was one of those things you said when you started there, you weren't doing as much accessibility for websites. That kind of became more of a thing since you've been working there. Yeah. Like over the the first couple of years, like we started investigating what, you know, what we would need to do it and getting us like the requisite training and stuff. And of course, you know, having me as a, having my, like my unique feedback, my ability to, test the websites with the screen reader as you know a blind person would you know that's that's valuable because i can you know it's one thing for the automated system to say yeah this this page is accessible but then i if i, if I go to use it and it's complicated or things aren't reading the way that they're supposed to in a way that the automated tools can't figure it out then you know it's always good to have that the two-step approach and you know the best way to do that is to have someone with, with a disability test it for you. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And that is just something to go out to any business out there is having diversity and, and hiring people on who have disabilities, blindness, or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's good for everyone in the long run because it, it does provide that expertise in these subjects and making things more accessible, which is inclusive for everyone. And it, 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 uh, it helps economy and it just helps society and as a whole. So it's, it's very, uh, very nice to see. So we were saying at the beginning, we met you in an airport uh, after the National Federation of the Blind Convention. How many of those have you been to and what do you like about them? What got you into them? What yeah, do you and think how did you them? kind of find out about them to begin with? Because I know you've been to more than us. We've been to one in the States so far. So. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to, well, I started going in 2010, oh. and I've, I've only missed, well, I guess two now, because we, well, we didn't have one this, we didn't, well, we had the virtual one, but there wasn't an interpersonal one this year because COVID. Right. Um, but yeah, I've only missed one other, 
Uh-huh. And that was mostly financial reasons. That was when I was still trying to find work and I just couldn't justify the expense. Um, right. But I've, yeah, I've gone every other year, every other year since. And I found out about them through some people that I'd met um, online, like who lived in the U.S. and went to the conventions. And, you know, we met on you know, some of them through Facebook, like through mutual friends, some of them through games. And they, a whole bunch of them ended up talking about this convention. So I, I was curious and started asking about it. And I said, you know, I'm, you know, this was 2010. So I was graduating high school and the convention was like a week later. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to celebrate graduating high school by going oh, to this convention. Yeah. And I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll get to meet up with a bunch of friends, check out some of the interesting stuff they have there. Uh, but then I, I ended up at, of course, the general sessions and seeing what the actual federation is about. And like it was, it was intriguing to me because like we didn't, well, at least I didn't, I didn't know that we had something like that here at the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what we have is a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see that on like on that scale. And I, I really enjoyed my time there, so I, I made obviously to, you kept going back. To go back. Yeah. Um, so where was the where was the very first one that you went to? What state? Uh, Dallas, Texas. Okay, no. and, and that must have just been like I don't know how much you can remember specifically about the first ever convention, but I just know for me it was I really, and I'm assuming it was somewhat similar. Is I really didn't know what to expect, and it it really did it kind of left me speechless and sort of was a pivotal time in my life just because seeing that this world out there were I mean it was a little different for you in the sense that I guess you you went to W. Ross school in Brantford so you were around more blind people growing up than I was but um, it's still even that in comparison to these oh, conventions is nothing so conventions like over or at least 10 times the size of that <laughs> yeah so like it was it's still is still definitely a, a unique experience you don't get anywhere else like hearing hearing all the canes and just mm-hmm. knowing you know ever around like, yeah having to pay a lot of attention when you're walking because like anybody around you could run into you at any moment or you could run into <laughs> someone because like not everyone uses their cane op- optimally so you gotta right. be on your guard when you're traveling and and all that it's just yeah it's it's it was unique and i mean i I've been, you know, I don't want to say worn, just people had, had mentioned like what their first experience was like and like you know, getting there, hearing all the canes and and stuff like that. It's like I, I kind of knew conceptually what to expect, but it's that's different than getting there and experiencing it. Yeah, it's always one of those things you could, you can sit here all day and explain to someone what it's like, but you don't really know until you actually go. So it's yeah. uh, it's one of those things that on this show we like to, recommend and definitely want more and more more people to go to these as possible um and again we're trying to work on this this sort of idea here in canada as well with the the canadian federation of the blind so yeah so what did you think of it when you heard there was a canadian federation of the blind well, i mean i heard i heard a it referenced a couple of times like before but i didn't know anyone who was in it um mm. so then when i when i met you guys which was complete by chance, we, we somehow missed each other. I mean, I did, we didn't know each other at all anyway, but we 
we never ran into each other at the convention. We met each other at the airport going home, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, now like I have a, you know, people I've actually met who are, who are in this. Right. Um, so, you know, it gave me a lot more encouragement to, to check it out and sign up and start going to meetings. Like yeah, I, we were having a summer social and, so I just met at the social where we started telling everybody who was there about what we're what we were trying to do in Ontario for the CFB, and uh, that's sort of when you joined in there. So I right, yeah, that. yeah. My first social was that soon. After. Yeah, it would have. It was pretty. <laughs> that's what I mean. That whole year there for been me was. Two. I didn't need two, and it was, one there wasn't one this year, so it had to be. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, 2018, I didn't even barely knew this federation existed, and then I went to the Canadian yeah. one, and then right to the American one, and then we had this big social and got all these people in. But I just wanted to mention that, yeah. specifically with, with Patrick, because it's, working on this Canadian Federation of the Blind, I mean, I mean, I mean, Carrie and I have only been involved for the past three years, and it's still a very small organization, and it's it's really hard, I find, in Canada, I mean, to, to get people involved, and it's we're also spread out, and just, it's... It, it takes time and some of the stuff is frustrating. So it's hard to keep people's interest. And I just think it's so refreshing when we, when we do find someone like Patrick who does take an interest because these aren't the type of things you can, you don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't want to preach to someone about it. You can't, you can't like tell someone to get involved. Really. Someone has to want it themselves. And it just seems like with you, even from the get go at the airport, when I mentioned the, the, the CFB and you right away gave give me your contact info. It just seemed like right from the get go, you jumped right on. And ever since you've been on, on the calls and meetings and everything, and it's just, um, just really appreciate it. And I just kind of didn't know if, if you had sort of any thoughts on it overall and just the situation in Canada as a whole, um, and with the CFB, just any thoughts that you might have. I mean, I'll, I'll say first that it definitely helps that I'd been to so many NFB conventions. So I knew the concept, I knew what, what it was, like if right. you if it, I'd been approached, you know, do you want to join CFB? This is what we're doing. Like I'd, if I'd never heard of it before and I didn't know what it was, like I I'd, I'd need to take some time to to check it out first. Like I already I already knew what what it was all about. So it's like, oh yeah, it's something I want to be a part of. But yeah, like in in Canada, things in some ways are better, in some ways are worse than in the U.S. I mean, obviously in the U.S. they have the NFB, and you know, it's it's had you know many years to expand and it's it's basically the the main like the primary organization of blind people like there's there's others of course and like they're all they all play a role but like nfb seems to be the largest um you know if you, you think blindness organizations in the u.s nfbs like the the first thought i imagine most people would have whereas you know here in canada the first thing that pops into people's head is CNIB, which is a different type of organization, which, I mean, they, they do some things that we need and definitely better than better. We have them than not have anything, but we need more diversity in the kind of organizations and advocacy and like programs that are offered. Um, Cause like with NFB, you know, the, blind people taking control of their own destiny and blind people are the ones designing the programs and other training centers and other, you know, public materials and things. Whereas the CNIB, you know, it's, 
it's a lot more of a corporate entity. Right. And, you know, it, you know, it, it, thing, things just get colored in a different way. Like, you know, the, their programs, you know, I mean, yeah, they're, they're with blind people in mind, but they also need to, to, you know, pay up, you know, keep their shareholders paid and you know, all the, all the legal requirements for their donations. And it's just, it's not all, it's not as many blind people involved in the process. Right. And I know recently you got involved in the last couple of years with um, some politics going on here in Ontario. And uh, what was that kind of like? How did you tie in what you do with CFBA into that sort of world? Right. So I, uh, in last year in the uh, federal election, I volunteered on a, a local candidate's campaign. And I'd never done that before, but, you know, they, their party was uh, advocating for a lot of issues that I think are important and that I think would be helpful to a lot of people, including blind people. So I, I wanted to, to volunteer, you know, to help, to help with their result and also to learn a bit more about how that kind of thing works, maybe a bit more about the policies themselves. Just and the, how the how the campaign process works. So that was it was really interesting. And and the the candidate I was working I was working with, he seemed to be pretty aware of accessibility uh, laws and issues. Like he he was good at he was good about like getting me situated you know, at the office or you know uh, or when we were going around knocking on doors. Like he seemed to know how to how to communicate when there were obstacles or things that my cane might not catch in time or just little things that made it easier for me to tag along. And then even up to a point where I, I was able to do it like semi independently. I mean, it's, it's always going to be difficult when you're walking around in our familiar neighborhood completely by yourself, but you know, it got to the point where like he knew the kind of things to do and not do most of the time. So he obviously had some, you know, accessibility and and like blindness knowledge. Mm. You know, I think it was really important because I, I wanted to. I think if CFB and NFB has taught me anything, it's that you need to, if you want something to change, you need to stand up and do something. You know, waiting around for someone else to do it is not usually going to get you results. I mean, in some cases, yeah, you need to reach out to the right people who have the power to do things and then something might happen. But otherwise, you know, especially, you know, systematic, you know, generational change, you know, that take that takes a long time. You need to be involved with it yourself if you want to shape where it's going. Right. And did you ever consider getting into politics any further? Um. I don't know if I'd be like cut out for, you know, running for an office or something, but I mean, yeah. I could, I could, if I learn more, if I learn more about it and end up, you know, finding other things I'm really passionate about and feel like I could feel like I could do it. I mean, I haven't ruled it out, but for now, I think I'm, I'm happy with the job I've got you. Know, I'm, I'm helping in, in a very, in a very real way, helping the accessibility cause. Right. Exactly. I mean, you talk about, you know, 
change over generations. How do you yourself sort of keep sort of some faith and keep going and that sort of thing? I mean, it's, it's helpful to, to keep up and, and uh, see, you know, hear about all the, the changes that have been made, all the improvements that there have been. You know, you hear about, you know, each case where, you know, a company agrees to make their website accessible or, you know, a state decides that they're not going to discriminate against blind parents anymore. And like, as every little, every little thing helps, like the more, the more these things happen, the more public perception there will be. And I think once, once public perception is there, like it, it makes it a lot easier because like people, people will see how things are better and you know, it's not adversely affecting anybody and like, chances of things going back go down once everyone realizes, oh, this is actually really good. Like I, I kinda think about it like in let's say comparing Canadian and American healthcare. Like, you know, we have the universal health care that, you know, everybody, everyone loves. Like even the more conservative minded people here, they love it. Whereas, you know, in the States it's a big fight. Like some people want to adopt it, some people don't. Whereas I think here, now that we have it, we recognize that, oh, this is a good thing. You know, it's, it's good for everybody. Like nobody wants to turn it back. So I think the same thing kind of could apply to, you know, these, these uh, accessibility policies and, you know, all the, all the practices, like once, once they become more mainstream and more companies are putting accessibility first, or we get more accessibility laws that, so, you know, this needs to be accessible or, you know, this needs to be a basic income or whatever, you know, once more people are on board, then like, you know, I, I imagine there'll be fewer people who would fight against it once it's a little more widespread. It's just a matter of getting it out there and demonstrating to people that these are good things. They're not, you know, you know, we're not just giving people handouts and, you know, it's, it's not like a, you know, it's not going to foster, you know, some kind of negative behavior. And it's also, you know, it's not just for a small segment of the population. Like a lot of people benefit from these policies and these ideas. Yeah. I mean, we could get into all of that. Really. We could. Um, (laughs) What do you think is a challenge going forward? How do you think we can do this sort of uh, to get more blind people to hear about what we're doing or projects? What do you think? I think, I think events is the way to go, uh, which of course right now is extra challenging because a lot of people aren't doing in-person events at the moment. Um, But in the future, like events, you know, like our, our, uh, our barbecue fundraisers, I think, are good because like we're out in out in public. People are seeing what we're doing. You know, they come by. You know, they're attracted by the food, but then they they end up asking about what our mission is, what we do, um, and you know, some of them make donations and and all that. And, I mean, the money helps, but if, the biggest thing is the, the public awareness. So just being in a situation where people are curious, come up, talk to us, and you know, that applies to, with blind people as well. Like we need to be doing things you know we like you said we can't just go preaching to people and say you should do this we need people to do that got to get people engaged yeah we have to be doing it and then that shows people what we're doing and gives the interest up and then people find it 
And I do think going to the conventions, like you pointed out, is a big thing. And especially, again, it's a, it's a hard thing sometimes to get someone to, to go because it's a, something so big and new and you, it's hard to convince yeah. someone. But I do think that really helps. And like you said, even with you, if you hadn't been to the NFB convention, you, it would have been harder to take that interest on CFB so fast. Yeah. Like, like, the, like the summer socials are good. You know, if we, if we can do like other events like that that are, you know, that draw people in who aren't already part of CFB, you know, because you know, there's an activity there that they're already interested in and then they mm-hmm. get acquainted with it at the same time. I think that's the most effective way to get new people. All right. Well, well. we appreciate having you uh, as part of our group now as we're as we're finding each other so we, we appreciate you i just wanted to say that these last few years yeah so thank you it means a lot great getting getting to know you guys and getting involved here because i mean i can i can get involved here a little easier than down in the states right <laughs> yeah absolutely and we all should be getting involved here because we're canadians so yeah it's good to keep up with both but there's more impact we can have here. True. We have to be aware of everywhere in the world, and especially the U.S., they're right here beside us, but at the same point, we have to do our own thing here. So, Thanks so much, Patrick Bouchard, for coming on, the, on Outlook today. No problem. It was great. Take care. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.